Really glad to be here with you this morning. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to see you guys. I just noticed you're here. Um, and we just started a series called Healing Broken Relationships. And today we're going to talk about family pain and uh, family relationships that are broken. And uh, I got to tell you, there's, there's no pain like family pain. Isn't that true? Uh, family pain, it, it like runs the deepest. It's the hardest to recover from. It stays with us the longest. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, when I was growing up, I was really close with my grandma and grandpa on my mom's side. And my grandpa, you, they lived right here in West Dallas. And my grandpa used to, he had a wood shop. And he would invite me to his house to do projects with him. Wood projects. We would make, and I can still remember that. I still remember the shop, exactly what it looked like. I can picture where the table saw was and where all of his tools hanging on the, on the tack board and everything. And the saw blades, and I can, I can still, you know, the, the smell of freshly cut wood and sawdust and all of that. And we would make these projects together. And I was just, I was little, you know, six, seven, eight, nine. And we would make, I remember we made a sailboat once. We would make little cars. We made a really, one time we made this really big treasure chest. I still have it. And, um, you know, through all the time I spent in my grandfather's wood shop, it was never about the finished product. It was never about, I didn't need any more cars. I didn't need another toy sailboat. You know, it wasn't about the treasure chest. It wasn't about the result. It was about the process. It was about, it was about the relationship. It was about me getting to know my grandpa, my grandpa getting to know me. It was about him passing on a skill to me and just us spending time together. And I remember it. I'll never forget it. It was part of us forming a lifelong bond. That's what it was about. It was about the process. Uh, my wife and I, we do things like that. My wife is actually better at this than I am. Uh, she will do a lot. She'll do things with our kids. She'll, she'll bake things with our daughters. She will sit down and do like a thousand-piece puzzle with my son. Um, and she'll, I'll take my son fishing sometimes. We'll go camping together, just him and I. And my wife and I understand it's not about the, the product. It's not about the brownies. It's not about the puzzle you know, it's not about how many fish we catch, even though my son will tell you that's what it's about. It's about the process. We, we understand that relationships are all about the process, not about the result. We are passing on, we're, we are sharing our lives with our kids. We're passing on ourselves to them. We're investing in them. We want our kids to grow up. And when they, when they become older and independent and when they are adults, we want them to look back and remember that we enjoyed spending time with them, that we loved them, that we poured ourselves into them. That's what, we, that's what it's about. Relationships are always about the process. Now, you might be a results-oriented person, and that's totally okay. Some of us are results-oriented. Some of us are not. Some of us are more process-oriented, right? And re- being results-oriented is really great in the business world. It's really important to be results-oriented. If you're in the construction industry, if you're in the financial industry, if you're in the medical field, you have to be results-oriented. That's what it's all about. It's all about results. But let me tell you, if you're about results in the relationship world, you are going to struggle. <laughs> and you're going to struggle hard because relationships aren't about, aren't about results. Our relationship with God isn't even about results. It's about the process. And when it comes to healing broken relationships, the same thing holds true. All right? Many of you, and I, I know this to be the case, 
have experienced brokenness in your relationships, in family relationships. And sometimes you've thought about, how, what can I do to repair that relationship? And you may have thought, you know what, that person, they hurt me, they bullied me, they betrayed me, they slighted me or whatever, and I, I don't want to try to reconcile with that person because I don't want to get hurt again. I don't think, they're gonna, I don't think trying to reconcile is even going to work. I don't think they're going to pay attention. But you know what? The outcome doesn't matter. It's not about the result. It's about the process. Healing broken relationships is about the process. It's, it's not about whether that relationship gets fixed. That's not why we're talking about this. I want you to know that. It's all about the process. So today what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. And we're going to stay in Genesis for a little while, for the next uh, couple weeks actually. And we're going to keep coming back to it. And, and here's the thing about Genesis. It is it's a book of beginnings, right? And Genesis is kind of broken up into two parts. The first 11 chapters are about how our relationship with God was broken. Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve, you know, they represent us and they, they rebelled against God. We would have too. And our relationship with God was broken. And sin became like this huge dividing wall. Um, last week we, we called it the dividing wall of hostility from Ephesians chapter 2. That wall stood between us and God. There's no way for us to get around it or, or, or climb it or break through it. Only Jesus could take that wall down. And that's what he does. Jesus, that's all he does is he ta- takes down walls. He tears down walls. And Jesus... Um, reconciled our relationship with God. So Genesis 1 through 11 is all about how that relationship between us and God got broken. And in Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And humans, once again, they rebel against God, and God scatters them over the rest of the year, all, all over the earth. So humans are divided from each other, and now they're divided, they're divided from God, and now they're divided from each other. And then Genesis chapter 12, everything starts to change. From Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis 50, the focus is on one family, just one family, and it's the family of Abraham. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and he has a couple sons, and then one of his sons has 12 sons. And the whole thing is God's going to use this one family to bring us back to him. God's going to use this family to restore humanity back into right fellowship with him. And to bless the whole earth. That's what he said. He promised Abraham he was going to bring a nation out of him. And from that nation would come a rescuer, a redeemer. And he would make everything right. He would tear down that wall and bring us back to God. That's what, uh, so Genesis, and and here's the thing about this family. This family is totally dysfunctional. I mean, there's jealousy, there's envy, there's betrayal, there's deception, there's rivalry. There's all kinds of problems. There's a trail of broken relationships. And yet God chooses to use that family to fix us all. I mean, that fascinating. I mean, it should give you hope today. You know, you think your family is dysfunctional. Well, so was God's family that he chose to reconcile you, to reconcile us to him. Now, we're going to look this morning at just really two members of the family Abraham, as as I said, he had a a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau, and we're going to focus on them today, and this is, uh, the story is found in in, uh, Genesis 26 through 32, so we're just going to look at bits and pieces today, or or Genesis 33 actually, and here's the thing about Jacob and Esau, the the writer of Genesis is very interested in what makes these brothers different, 
And from the very beginning, he says, even when they are in their mother's womb, their mother Rebecca, when they're in the womb, they are fighting with each other. And they are wrestling for control. Esau comes out first, and Jacob is grabbing onto his heel. Like, no! I want to be first. I mean, that defines their relationship from the time they're born. Esau comes out red and hairy and stout. I picture him looking like a baby Ewok or something. And he, that's what they called, they, they would looked at him and they said red. And that translated Esau, you know, that's what he looked like. Imagine what your name would be if your parents looked at you and just the first word that came out of their mouth. Um, don't think about that too much. But Jacob comes out, Jacob comes out totally different. He comes out smooth and slimy. And as the boys grow, they become more and more different. Esau is a hunter. Jacob is domesticated. Esau likes to spend time in the fields, out in nature, hunting and eating wild game. Esau, Esau likes to hang around tents and stay at home and stay in the kitchen and bake things. He's more, Jacob is more sophisticated. He's, he's a little more even-tempered. He's, um, and, and his mom, incidentally, loves him more. And Esau, on the other hand, he's a man's man. He's, he's reckless. He's rugged. And Jacob, or I'm sorry, Isaac, the dad, loves Esau more. So the parents don't, the, the parents actually make matters worse. They make the differences even worse. They make the rivalry between the two brothers worse. Now, when the boys were, were older, they're, they're grown men now, right? They're, they still are living in their, in their father's, under their father's realm and their father's property and all of that. And um, it's before they started families of their own. Esau came back from hunting one day, and he's totally famished. He feels like he's starving. And Jacob, rather than help his brother out and say, Oh, brother, hey, I, I cooked this stew. Would you like some? He sees, it, he sees an opportunity to take advantage of his brother's weakness and desperation. And he says, Hey, brother, you hungry? Yeah, I'm famished. I feel like I could die right now. He's like, Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a trade. I'll give you this food I made. If you sell me your birthright, you give me your birthright. Now, the birthright was basically like an inheritance. So because Esau, it represented two things, authority and, and uh, inheritance. So because Esau was the firstborn, he had authority. He was the next in line after his father. He had authority over his younger brother. And because he was the firstborn, he was set to inherit twice as much as Jacob. And he traded that for a meal. He actually took the trade. And he said, okay, I'll do it. I feel like I'm going to die anyway. I might as well just give away the best thing I have. He later would regret it. He later would regret that. So that was the first, that was the first big kind of sticking point in their relationship. Not, maybe not the first one, but a really big one. Jacob takes advantage of Esau, takes his birthright from him. I mean, Esau gave it to him, really. But that didn't help matters at all. Then later on, it's time for the boys to kind of leave home and start their own families, start their own life. And the tradition was that the father would bless his sons. And because Esau was the firstborn, Isaac had reserved a very special blessing for his son Esau. And this is not just like, hey son, let me pray for you, good luck. This is a huge deal. Like whatever, Jacob, whatever Isaac was going to tell his son Esau in that blessing, that was going to determine the course of his life. These are the most intimate personal plans that Isaac, that Isaac has 
from God for his son Esau. This would be like his identity. And, and, and Rebekah hears that Isaac is about to bless his son Esau. Esau, I, what Isaac did, he said, hey Esau, go hunt me some wild game, bring it back, and I'll give you the blessing. Rebekah hears what's going to happen. She, go, she sees an opportunity again. She goes to Jacob, who she loved more. She says, hey son, do what I tell you. Your father's about to give Esau the blessing, but I want you to have it, and here's how we're going to get it. And they devise this scheme. <laughs> you're, for some of you who haven't heard the story, you're wondering, how in the world could you steal someone else's blessing, right? What Jacob does is he goes out, he, get, he puts Esau's best clothes on, he goes out, he kills a goat, and he covers himself in goat hair. Because remember, he was smooth, and Esau was super hairy. And he, like, rubs this stuff on him so he smells like Esau. And then all the while, Rebecca, his mom, is baking some wild game, just like Isaac loves it. And, and he, she gives it to, to Jacob. He goes in. He presents it to his father. Here I am. I'm Esau. I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac is mostly blind by this point. So the whole thing works. And Jacob steals Esau's blessing. He steals his identity is really what he does. And, and this identity theft is so severe that Esau would never recover from it. And Esau, of course, after Jacob had left and he had stolen the blessing, Esau comes back from the field and he's like, here I am, father. And Isaac starts freaking out like, what do you mean? I just gave you the blessing. He's like, no, I, I, that's, that wasn't me. And they realize what had happened. And Esau, he just breaks down and he's like, he begs his father to give him the blessing. Isn't there a blessing left for me, Father? He's, he's crying and pleading with his father. Can't you give me a blessing? And his father's like, I'm sorry. I gave it to your younger brother. He's deceived both of us. There's nothing I can do. And Esau leaves the presence of his father completely broken. And, and eventually the brokenness turns into rage and resentment. And Esau ends up hating his brother because of what he did. And, and in fact... In Genesis 31, Esau says this, When my father dies and the days of mourning have passed, I'm going to kill my brother. That's actually in Genesis 27. I'm going to kill my brother. That's what he said. I'm going to kill my brother. He was determined to kill him. He hated him. So Jacob, Rebecca, interesting, someone hears Esau saying this to himself. So he must have been one of those guys who talked to himself. I know that you guys are out there. And someone hears Esau say this, and they go tell Rebekah, and Rebekah goes to Jacob and says, hey, we need a new plan. Your brother wants to kill you. You need to get out of town. So Jacob leaves. He, he travels 500 miles to live with his uncle Laban, where he, where he will be safe. And Rebekah says, okay, I'll keep an eye on your brother, and when, when he forgets about all this and he stops being angry with you, I'll let you know and you can come back home. That was the new plan. 20 years go by. 20 years. The brothers don't see each other. They don't talk to each other. They want nothing to do with each other. And then one day, God comes to Jacob. And he says this in Genesis 31.3. Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. I'll be with you. That's what God told Jacob. So after 20 years of lying low, 
after 20 years of separation, after 20 years of nothing, of 20 years of brokenness, God tells Jacob, time to face up to your past. It's time to face up to your past. You've been running long enough. It's time to go home. But here's what God does. He attaches a promise to it. And I love this about God because he does the same thing with us. Anytime God tells us to do something hard, he always says, I will be with you. Here's what I want you to do. I know it's going to be super hard. I know you don't know what's going to happen. I know you, you, you think you're going to lose your life. But, but you know what? I'm going to be with you. And that's what God tells us to do, by the way. Anytime God asks us to do something hard, that promise is there. I will be with you. Okay? I, he doesn't promise it won't be hard. He doesn't promise your safety. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't promise a good outcome. He promises his presence. That's what he promises. Okay? Reconciliation with people from our past is not about the outcome. It's about us experiencing the presence of God. That's what this is about. God will not let you run from your past forever. Okay? Some of you have been running from your past. Some of you have burned some bridges. Some of you have some broken relationships. Some of you are are hiding things, you know? God won't let you run from that forever because he's good. And, you, and, it's, and as long as you're running from that relationship, you are not going to experience the presence of God the way that you want to. You're just not going to. It's not going to happen. And so God is going to meet you at some point. He's going he's to stand in your path and say, okay, that's enough. It's time to turn around and go home. Has he done that with you? He might be doing it with you today. And, and you know what you're know what you going to do? You're going to wrestle with God. You're going to say, God, God, wait a minute, God. <laughs> Don't you remember who lives back home? I, I can't reason with them. They're impossible. They're not going to change. This isn't going to work. And you know what God's going to say? That's not, that doesn't matter. It, that doesn't matter. The outcome I'm not, you don't need to worry about the outcome. Let me worry about the outcome. This isn't about the result. This is about the process. Okay? This is about me revealing myself to you. That's what it's about. That's why God tells us to go back. That's why we have to face our past. So so what happened? What happened? Don't you want to know what happened? If you haven't heard this story before, It's really an amazing, it's an amazing narrative. Jacob reluctantly obeys God, but he's very careful about it. He's a a detail-oriented person, and he's very concerned about the outcome. So here's what he does. He He starts making his way back home, right? And when he hears that Esau's clan is close, here's what he does. He sends messengers out ahead of him, or like scouts, to kind of get the lay of the land and to see what Jacob or what Esau is going to do with these messengers. Okay, he wants to see what's, you know, how, if Esau's changed at all, how many men are with him, all that kind of stuff. He wants to know what he's going to be up against, right? So he sends these scouts out. In Genesis 32, 6, the, the messengers come back and they give Jacob some, some good news and bad news. Here's the good news. 
They come back and they say to Jacob, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. And 400 men are with him. Verses 7 and 8. You can predict Jacob's response. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Can you just picture this happening? Here's what I picture. Imagine, Imagine if the United States government became violently hostile to Christians and to the church. Violently hostile. Like they were out to destroy Christians, which is happening in the world, by the way. Imagine if that came to the United States and, and, and Cross Point Church, you know, we were displaced and we lost the building and, and all of you lost your jobs and your homes and we all ended up wandering somewhere in the wilderness together as a church of two to 300 people. And, and we heard that, you know, about a mile from us was coming a government, um, like, uh, platoon or army platoon or something, and they were just looking, they were looking for us. They're going to wipe us out. You know what we do, right? We divide ourselves into small groups, and we'd send Pastor Scott's small group on ahead <laughs> so that the rest of us could get away. I have a plan. You don't have to worry unless you're in Pastor Scott's small group. So that's kind of what's going on with Jacob's, Jacob's family and his clan. He's being strategic. He's like, okay, we're going to send this group on ahead, and maybe some people, maybe some of us at least, will survive this massacre. And that's what he's thinking. And, and, and so Jacob is freaking out. He divides everything up. And then he says this prayer. And I'm not going to read the whole prayer. I'm just going to give you a couple pieces of this prayer. He says this prayer to God. And he basically says, Oh, Lord God, remember when you told me to go back home? <laughs> you, this was your idea, God. Remember that? Now, God, save me from my brother. Save me from my brother. He's desperate. And then he, he, he ends the, play, the prayer this way. He ends his prayer this way. But you have said, God, I will surely be good to you and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob, even though he's, he's terrified, he's distressed, he remembers God's promise. He remembers God's promise. And that's huge because... Even though he doesn't know what the outcome will be, even though he is terrified and he, he's pretty sure he's going to get wiped out, he determines that he's going to obey. He's not going to find a new hiding spot. He's not going to hightail it again to some other distant land. He's not going to keep running. He's going to do what God said. And he pretty much just throws himself on God's mercy, which is, which is awesome. He, he did the right thing. In fact, he obeys God regardless of the outcome. That's what he does. He obeys God regardless of the outcome. And if you can get to that place in your relationship with God, where you are willing to obey God, even though you don't know what the outcome is going to be, even though it feels terrifying, you are about to experience something special. You are about to experience the presence of God, and you might be in a place to experience the presence of God in a way you never have before. Because anytime we obey God, He is with us. He's with us. And it might not be fixing the relationship. That might not be the thing that happens. It might be something better than that. 
that something you didn't even expect. And, and, he, and here's how that happened in Jacob's life. The next morning, Jacob is about to meet Esau, and he knows it. He knows there's nothing he can do to stop this. He's going to obey God. He's going to cross the river Jabbok, and he's going to meet his brother. And that night, one of the most famous passages in the entire Old Testament, Jacob wrestles with God. That night, the night before he meets Esau. And, and, and I, I'm not going to read the narrative for you. It's about 10 verses. If you're in a small group this week and your small group goes through the questions, you'll, you'll focus in on that a little bit. But it's just amazing. Jacob ends up wrestling with this man. He doesn't know who it is. They wrestle through the entire night. And at the end of the whole thing, he finds out this is God in the flesh. This is God in the flesh who has come down to visit me. His presence is with me. He, he was with me on the hardest night of my life. He wrestled with me all night. He injured Jacob's hip. He dislocated his hip. It was like the same injury that ended Bo Jackson's football career. He ends up in, limping the rest of his life, but he's changed. He's, he's a new man the next morning. He clings to God. He lets go of his fears. He begs God to bless him. God blesses him, renews his promise with him, gives him a new name, a new identity. And Jacob leaves a new man. It was the most personal, powerful encounter he ever had with God was that night. And here's why that's important. Because Jacob's willingness to obey God and do the hard thing and face his past led to the greatest encounter with God he ever had. Okay, if Jacob was not willing to engage in the process of reconciliation, he would never have seen God. Do you see the connection? He would never have encountered God that way because God reveals himself to us in the process. In the process. So, Genesis 33, here's what happens the next morning. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children. He divides them again. He divided the children uh, among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants in the rear. He himself went on ahead. I'm sorry. He put the—I skipped a line. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead of all of them and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Isn't that amazing? Here Jacob is, you know, agonizing over the outcome of this all along. And it was all for nothing. I mean, it wasn't all for nothing. He, it, it was all about the process. And in the end, God preserved him. God kept his promise. And the interesting thing is if you read on, you know what, their relationship, it's not like all of a sudden they were best friends. That didn't happen. They're twin brothers. But you know what, they don't, they don't move on to the next city and settle there. And they're not like, hey, let's, uh, let's build a, a house together and let's let our, let our kids grow up together. Oh, all the cousins, it'll be great. That's not what happened. They reconcile, they embrace, they weep, they kiss, they forgive, and they give each other space. Esau moves on to one city. Jacob moves on to another city. And you know what? That's okay. 
That was God's plan. That was God's plan. Now let's talk about us. Let's talk about you and us and why this matters. Because I know that many of you have a broken family relationship. You know how I know? You've told me. You have an absent father. You have a brother or a sister you haven't talked to in many, many years. You have, a, a, maybe you have a, a family member who abused you. You have a daughter who doesn't want anything to do with you. You have a broken family relationship. And you have just determined, you know what, there's nothing more I can do. I've done everything I could. This is just, it is, it is what it is. <laughs> you know? That's what we say. But you know what? I don't know how that happened, but here's what I do know. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the way it has to be. God can heal our broken relationships. He can heal any broken relationship. I don't care how broken it is. I don't care how long it's been since you have talked to them or since you have had communication with them. God can heal. He can heal any relationship. You know how I know that? Because he healed his relationship between us and him. And no relationship was more broken than our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And God went from heaven to earth to bring us back to him. He gave us his one and only son to give us peace with him. So do you believe that God can heal that broken family relationship? It's hard to believe sometimes. I know it is, but he can. If, if you're willing to face your past, you have to be willing to obey. You have to be willing to at least move in that direction and engage in the process of healing broken relationships. But here's what you need to know. The outcome is not as important as the process. I can't promise you God is going to fix that relationship. I can't promise a good outcome. God may not promise you a good outcome. But he does promise you he will be with you along the way. He will reveal his presence to you. He will speak to you. He will be near. And that should be the, all the motivation we need. So if the process matters... And if the process is what's important, then here's the one thing we can't do. We can't say, okay, God, I've done all I can do. I've done everything I can do. There's nothing more I can do. It's your turn. You just can't do that. I mean, we talked about this last week. Jesus tears down walls. We put up new ones. Jesus tears it down again. And, you know, we're like, okay, Jesus, well, you know, there's nothing more I can do. I'm closing the door. No, you can't close the door. You don't have that right. You have to leave the door open in every single relationship. That's the way it is. Okay? You can't be like, okay, God, can I give up on my brother now? I mean, I've tried and tried. He doesn't see reality. He's never going to change. God, can I just give up on my ex-wife? She's impossible. She, I just, I just want to just leave her alone and go my way and let her go her way. God, can I just give up on my dad? He hurt me so badly. I can't never trust him again. Do I have to forgive him? Do I have to go back? Do I have to face him again? Can I just leave him alone and let him die? Can I just stop this process? And can, I, can I just give up, please? This is exhausting. It's not even going to work, God. Let me just ask you something today. Aren't you glad God never talked about you that way? 
Aren't you glad God never gave up on you? Aren't you glad God has never slowed down in his pursuit of you? Aren't you glad that God has always left the door open with you? You know, Jacob, interesting fact, Jacob was 97 years old when this happened. When he reconciled, when he wrestled with God, imagine that. And people lived a little longer back then. But 97. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how old you are, how long it's been. It's not too late. It's not too late for you to go home. It's not too late for you to face up to your past. You know, we've been singing this song lately in the last couple months, and, and, and my kids love it. They sing it at home. It's the reckless love of God. Uh, I'm actually going to have Mark, or the, Mark and Lindy or just Mark come up and lead us in this song as we close today. And you know what we love about this song? It talks about God's reckless love for us. But do you know what? God's reckless love for us is meant to change us. God's reckless love to, for us is meant to break us so that we are willing to go out and love other people with that reckless kind of love. So as we're singing this song this morning and we're, we're thinking about, you know, these, maybe someone came into your mind today, a family member, a close friend, someone you used to work with, a, a relationship that's been fractured for many years. I want you to think about this as we, as we sing today. I'd like you to think about not only God's reckless love, but what might happen if you love like that. What, what would happen if you loved recklessly? And what might happen if you chased down the people that you've been separated from and loved them the way that God has loved you? What would happen? I can't promise you that that relationship would get fixed. But I can promise you this. You will experience God's presence in the process and maybe in a way you never have before. And it might even be the most pow powerful encounter with God you will ever have. And that's enough. That's enough for us. Let's pray together. Father God, our prayer today is simple. We want you, Father, to come wrestle with us and help us to let go of our fears and to let go of the outcome and to cling to you. Father, we, we, we invite you to even injure us if you have to until we are willing to submit to you. But please, God, bring us to a place where we can all say together, thy will be done. Let us not worry about the outcome. Help us to simply obey you and trust that you are with us there is anyone from our past, even the recent past, especially family members, who we need to humble ourselves and go seek peace with, then please show us, Lord, and move us to them, limping if necessary, so that you can accomplish your purpose through us. Whatever we do next, Lord, may it be out of humility and trust. And God, as we follow you, please show yourself to us in a very real and personal way so that we can be changed. In Christ's name. Amen.